Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Those are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, as paraphrased in the message translation of the Bible. These are words that are an invitation into the life of Jesus. This beautiful invitation to rest in the rhythms of grace that God offers in the midst of a competitive and weary world. And it's why we're gathered here today to remind ourselves of the rest that he offers, to slow down, to breathe in his goodness and grace. It's a joy to gather with you all today. For those of you who might not know me, uh, my name is Joel McCarty. As Kevin said, I'm the pastor, um, one of the pastors here at New Eden, uh, the pastor for preaching and oversight specifically. Um, We say all the time, though, that Jesus is our senior pastor. He is the one that's leading this church, and we're just along for the ride. And so we we believe that. Uh, We mean that. And everything we do, we want to make it about Jesus. And the songs we sing, and the the messages that we preach um, as we pray together, as we fellowship together. It's all about Jesus. And so my prayer for each of you is that you leave here encouraged by the good news of Jesus and his kingdom today. Um, We want you to know that you're welcome here because Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom freely. um, And based on his work alone, we, we do the same. And so we hope that you feel like family and you know that to be true today. Um, And so as you heard read, we're continuing through the gospel of John. We preach expositionally most of the time. Today, we're in John chapter five, verses one through 18. Uh, We're going to have the verses on the screen for you. If you want to follow along that way, uh, you can also look it up on your phone or follow along in your scripture notebooks or your copy of the Bible, if you'd like. So our story today in, in the text is going to center around a question that every single one of us in here can resonate with. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be complete? Do you want to be at peace? Do you want to walk in the rhythms of grace as we read a moment ago? Now for you, your struggle uh, might not be a physical sickness as it was for the man in our story today. For you, it might be emotional distress. It might be past trauma in your life. It might just be trying to find rest in the midst of a busy and crazy life, right? Where, where the world tells you that your identity comes from how much money you make, maybe how many things you can possess before you die, maybe what kind of spouse you get, maybe how your kids turn out one day. But whoever you are, And whatever you brought with you in here today, no matter the baggage, like I can't say I I know each and every one of you and I understand what you're carrying with you here today, but I can tell you that there is one that can truly make you whole. That there is a place where healing can be found. And that's what our story teaches us today. Uh, To be honest, as we walk through the text, sometimes I have a framework or points, if you want to call them that. Today, I don't have much of that. I thought it would be just helpful for us to kind of walk through the story and take some time to explain the context, because I think it'll have even more value than just as we do a cursory reading of the text. Our author, John the Evangelist, is trying to communicate something important to us. 
And so verses one through three sets the scene of our passage. So let's read over those real quick as we dive into the text one more time. It says, after this, so after Jesus was just in Cana and healing the young man from Capernaum, we saw that last week, he heads back to Jerusalem where this Jewish festival takes place and he goes up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So from our story last week, Jesus heads to Jerusalem because there's this festival taking place. Now, there were seven different Jewish festivals. We'll look at that more in a minute. Our author doesn't tell us which of the festivals it was. He just tells us that there was a festival taking place. He wants to put that in our mind because it will come into play as we read through this story. Now, in Jerusalem, there was essentially this giant pool and the five colonnades were basically like five porches or just coverings where the pools were. And so that's what our text calls them colonnades. And so what would happen is this giant pool would periodically receive water from another source. And so the pool would bubble up or kind of well up. That's what we're told later in verse seven. Now, depending on the translation of the Bible you have, uh, you might not have a verse four in your text. I don't know if you noticed that. You might have a little footnote. The, the verses are not obviously inspired scripture. There's something that was added later. And that verse four was a parenthesis that says that attributes the stirring of the waters to an angel. Um, our best and earliest manuscripts don't actually contain that statement. Um, so scholars have assumed that's probably not actually inspired scripture. So they put it there in the, the footnote. Okay. Um, and so again, they're trying to explain what was the stirring of the water. Um, healing sites like this were not uncommon. There were many secular healing sites in this time and in this culture. And so this is probably no different. They were these superstitious sites that said, hey, if you come here and certain things happen, then healing will take place. And people who were disabled would want to come to these sites and try to get healing. Maybe they had tried doctors and other things, and so they're desperate, and so they just want to come to these places. Now, it doesn't mean that actual healing did not take place here. We're not sure. What we do know, the text doesn't tell us, what we do know is that there was an understanding that whoever, when the waters would, would be stirred, periodically that whoever was first into the water would get healing from their ailments, whatever infirmity they might have. And so they were waiting in, looking to be healed. Many of them also could seek shelter because it was a covered area. And so many of them were probably homeless or abandoned in this culture. Um, so th this wasn't an area that most people probably wanted to go to and just hang out. It's not like we think, you know, go by the pool, hang out, sit like, like you're on the beach. That, that's not the picture we see here, but it is where we see Jesus hanging out um, as he does often. So John 5, verse 5 through 9, we see this man, look at it. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. So out of all these people here, Jesus picks this one man. When Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6 of our text in John 5, when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. So our story is, is pretty straightforward. Jesus, either supernaturally or because he had a conversation with him, sees this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. 
And he would just lay there begging someone, hey, help me get in this water. And maybe at this point, 38 years later, he had even quit asking. He had just kind of, maybe it was just a place for, he'd gotten used to lay there with his mat. And so Jesus comes up to him and he asked the man, the question that our author wants us all to ask of ourselves, do you want to get well? And this word well is the idea of whole or complete. Some translations even use that word whole. And the man's reply is so intriguing to me. He doesn't actually answer the question Jesus asked. Just immediately, he goes to start making excuses. He's like, well, you know, I, I've tried everything I could to get in the waters. He assumes that's the only way that he could get well, this physical way of getting well. He might've even been hinting like, hey, I've tried before to get in the water, but no one helps me. Maybe this man will help me get into the water. Not realizing he's talking to the one who created the water and not only the water, but the same legs that this man had on his body that had stopped working years before. And I love this because Jesus doesn't even acknowledge his excuse. He didn't even deal with it. He just says, get up, take up your mat and walk. Like in the story, right? So it's kind of different than the story of the man we saw last week. If you remember, we heard about this man's faith and you kind of see his progression moving from faith in Jesus's works to his word, to Jesus himself and the person of Jesus. And I think that's intentional. We want to get into that story. This one seems a little cold. Like the interaction between Jesus, it seems less personal. There's no talk of belief or faith, no conversation. Jesus just speaks. This man's legs are healed. Story over, right? But this is intentionally setting up the conversation that's about to happen. See, John wants us to look deeper beyond just this story and say, well, hey, this man got healed. Let me get healed too, right? He wants us to go deeper. He's painting a bigger picture for us. He wants us to take in the story and see what happens after this man's healing. He wants us to remember that this was around a time of a festival. He also tells us that this was on a Sabbath. And especially we want to look at this question. What does it actually mean to get whole? Does it just mean that if we have physical infirmities that we just want those to get better? See, as we keep reading, we're going to see that our overarching story in the gospel of John is starting to shift. Uh, for the first time in our text today, we start seeing people get mad at Jesus. There were people that doubted Jesus and were kind of like, what do we do with him? But at this point, they're actually opposing Jesus. And we're going to see this continue all the way to the cross. See, the religious leaders don't like what he's doing here. Jesus is disrupting their system. He's disrupting their way of life. And that's how people respond. We're told that they get upset because this man is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now to understand this, we're going to do a little bit of history here and understand what the Sabbath was. And to understand where the Sabbath was instituted, we need to go back even further, all the way to the Garden of Eden, to the creation story. So try to follow me. This will be important for us to understand for our story today. So in Genesis, we're told God creates the world in six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. And it sets up this theme of this number seven throughout the story of the scriptures. It represents completion or wellness or wholeness. So through the first six days, God takes order and chaos and he gives everything a place and a purpose, birds for the sky, fish for the sea. And then on the sixth day, he places humans to rule and reign in love over all of his good creation. And then God rests on the seventh day. Now, this doesn't mean that God didn't work in the sense that he wasn't still sustaining creation. But what it did mean is that he took time along with the humans he was fellowshipping with to enjoy his good creation. 
He wasn't so worried about getting ahead and getting to the next project that he didn't stop and breathe in and say, it is good. It also means that the work that God participated in was life-giving, not life-draining. It was restful work. There was no um, fall or sin pushing back against the natural order and the flourishing of creation. This seventh day rest was meant to be an ongoing eternal thing forever and ever. This life-giving labor of love spreading God's glory to the cosmos. And then us as humans, which is just crazy. If you think about it, we got invited into this flourishing, fruitful, restful, life-giving work. We know the story. Humans rebel against God, right? We want control for ourselves. And so we don't trust him or his way. And so when that happens, one of the results of the fall was that rest was now hard to come by. Creation would now fight back when men and women tried to cultivate flourishing and abundance. And there was more wilderness than there was life giving rest. And the story of humans from then on is one of searching for that eternal rest. We feel it in our hearts. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find our rest in you. This is the story. We fast forward to the nation of Israel. They had been freed from their oppressors in Egypt. And so Yahweh enters into a covenant with them. And even as they're wandering in the wilderness, right? Remember, they're wandering in the wilderness. God institutes this Sabbath day rest. He says, hey, every seventh day, you're to take a break from all your work, stop it and just rest and enjoy the fruit of your labors, party with your family, enjoy community and commune with me. It was a mandatory vacation, right? I don't know if you've seen the meme floating around where someone says, I support mandatory vacations for everyone. And then you misread it really quickly. And it says, looks like it says, I support mandatory vaccinations for everyone. And then everybody starts getting mad on the comments. Like, no, you can't make people get vaccinated. But it says mandatory vacations for everyone, right? And I'm like, hey, that's a great idea. That wouldn't be a bad idea, right? Um, but that's what this was. I mean, it was a mandatory vacation for the people of Israel, a mandatory time of rest. So along with the Sabbath on the seventh day was instituted seven different annual feasts for Israel. Like most of them were week long parties, like stop what you're doing. Everybody hang out and party seven different times throughout the year, right? You're like, man, I love seven weeks of vacation every year. Also every seventh year, they were supposed to stop working for the whole year, let the ground rest and recover. Okay. So there's another seventh year. And then every seventh of those, so every 49th year, there was what was called the year of Jubilee, the year of favor. It was a year when all debt was forgiven, all slaves were freed, and everyone was given a fresh start. There was no worry about people taking advantage of the system. Like I read this from a Western American lens and I'm like, but what about the guy that goes into massive debt on the 48th year? That's not fair, right? Like they're going to play the system. That's what I think, you know, from my American lens. And I know some of you do too, right? But here's the deal. The point was that they were to honor God and trust him with their resources. They were to allow everyone, no matter the mistakes they had made, the poor decisions they had made in their life to enter into this season of wholeness or rest when everything was set back right. And so even under the old covenant, this was based on grace, not performance. It was a command given to rest. And you think like we all say amen to mandatory vacations, right? 
But wait until you're the one that has to pick up the slack when someone else has the vacation, right? And so we end up breaking this promise because we, we want to get ahead in our culture and we don't trust God. And so the nation of Israel was no different. They broke this often. And so all of these things, the Sabbath, the seven festivals, the year of Jubilee, they were meant to be these practical ways for the nation of Israel to do two things. Look back to the seventh day rest of creation and long for that union with God again and that flourishing in that garden and look forward to the day when the prophet said it was coming, when there was an eternal rest and the king would bring that back to the nation of Israel and actually to the entire earth, all the nations. And so by the time of Jesus, unfortunately, like humans do, we take tools and, and reminders that God gives us to remember him and we turn them and twist them into using them for our own kingdom. And the religious leaders had used this Sabbath day to keep their thumb over people, to rule over and oppress and control others. The heart of the command had been completely missed. And so stacked on top of the commands of God that we see under the old covenant were all these man-made traditions. By the time this man was here, there were 39 different rules telling you what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And one of them was that you could not carry anything, even your mat, from one dwelling place to another, because that would be work. So that's what they confront this man about. So the religious leaders say, what are you doing? In verse 10, they confront this man. Why are you carrying this mat? And he says, well, I, I don't know, like this guy who healed me, told me to pick it up and go. And like my legs started working. So I just obeyed, like, don't blame me, right? There's a little picture of the garden. He has no idea who it is though. Jesus has slipped away into the crowd at this point is what we're told. And so they're like, well, who did it? He's like, I don't know. So Jesus heals this man that these religious leaders had probably seen before 38 years laying there. And all they care about is some man-made rule that he's breaking. Some of us are no different. They ignore the miracle that Jesus had performed because for them to acknowledge that meant also acknowledging that he was king and he was the leader and they were not. And what we need to see is that this healing, and this is beautiful, it's a picture of Jesus reversing the effects of the fall. This is Jesus do, undoing what humanity caused because of their sin. And all these religious leaders like care about is you're breaking my rules and they're missing the bigger picture. Like, and it can be easy for us to think that they were stupid for missing God at work in the person of Jesus, but we're often no different. Often we don't want to actually trust that God is at work and in control. And so we try to micromanage other people's discipleship because if they just got it like we did, you know, we don't trust the spirit to work in their lives. We do the same thing in our own lives. We run ourselves ragged. I run myself ragged trying to fix my own brokenness that I created. And just like last week, we saw with the signs, the problem is not the Sabbath. The problem is their hearts. It's our hearts. See, the story of this man being healed is not being told in a vacuum. Our author wants us to have in mind the festivals, the Sabbath day, the year of Jubilee, because as we, we have that in mind, our story takes on a much deeper meaning than just the physical healing of just one man. I think that's why we find this interesting comment from Jesus. Look in uh, chapter five, verse 14. This is after they get upset with this man and they're mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. It says, after this, Jesus found him. So the man that was healed, he finds him in the temple and he says to him, see, you are well. 
do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. So Jesus comes up to this man and says like, hey, look, you're well, you're whole. This is permanent. But that's only a physical healing. And I want to make sure you see that you need something more because there's a bigger problem than just your legs not working. You are a sinner in need of a savior. So don't go on sinning so that something worse than a physical disability happens to you. Now, this might make you uncomfortable, right? Depending on your baggage and background, okay? So let's wrestle with this. Does this mean that this man's 38-year disability was a direct result of his own sin? I'd love to give you an answer to that. The truth is, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. The statement could mean that. Um, it could just mean that Jesus was using this former physical disability that he had lavished so much grace on him to heal him from and say, hey, like, let me, let me help you see, you know how bad that was? Like, that was really bad. Like, the results of sin are, are way worse than a 38-year physical disability, okay? So we don't have time to unpack this completely. A couple things that I think we, we want to wrestle with. Um, first of all, let me, let me say some things that we know to be true from scripture. First of all, all sickness and sin and brokenness, whether cosmic, like, you know, natural disasters um, or personal, they're all a result of sin somewhere down the line, going back to the fall, either our own sin or in many cases, someone else's. Ever since the fall, one of the effects of rebellion and sin is that things don't work how they should, that things are broken. And many times us experiencing that brokenness is a result of someone else's sin. And the beauty of, of for those that are in Christ is that God is going to use that brokenness to work an eternal weight of glory someday. And we don't understand how all that works, but we trust it. At the same time, sometimes, and scripture's clear about this, and this is tough to wrestle with, sickness and brokenness can be a direct result of our own rebellion against God. Now, let me be very clear. This does not mean that every time some kind of tragedy happens in our life, we should be jumping to the conclusion that it's because we did something. Bad stuff happens. Read the book of Job. As a general result of the fall, bad stuff happens in life. And sometimes it's never deeper than that. Sometimes it's just, God, I, I fix this. Come quickly. I remember one time when I was in high school, this was my, you know, uh, upbringing, my church growing up was every time something bad happened, it's because you did something wrong. So I was in high school. I think I hit a curb with my car or something, or I had spun out somewhere. And I, I genuinely thought, like, I genuinely believe this, that it was because I was listening to country music in my car at the time. Now, God might should judge some people for listening to country music, but for a different reason than what I was taught, right? I'm just joking. Nothing wrong with country music. Well, some of it. Uh, anyways, <laughs> common grace and then depravity, you know, the tension there, right? So, but seriously, I thought, well, that was of the world. That was evil. I wasn't supposed to be listening, listening to it. And so that's what happened, right? That's not what this passage is trying to communicate to us. The Bible is very clear on this. We should never make assumptions about the correlation between someone else's sin and their sickness. Like very clear. You're going to see that in John 9. His disciples do it and Jesus gets on to them and says, nope, nope, this has nothing. This guy's blindness has nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin. It just has to do with that. I want to get glory out of him. 
And so we see that. Um, but okay, at the same time, sometimes the spirit will communicate us and use sickness and brokenness and the natural results of sin in our own life to kind of jolt us and wake us up and say like, yeah, like you think this is bad? Like eternal separation from me is way worse than this. So like you need healing from your sin. The whole point of all this is that sin is bad. And like, we don't, I feel like we don't like to talk about this a lot and hear this a lot, but like sin is destructive. And if you've seen it in someone else's life, because sometimes it's easier to do that, then we see it in our own life. Like it, it actually destroys and infects every part of our being and it separates us from the life source, the creator. Things don't work right when sin comes into the mix. He's also not telling this man that if you make another mistake, you're going to be in trouble. That's not what he's saying at all. Clearly, he's not telling them even to keep the man-made rules that the religious leaders had set up. He was the one that told them to break them, right? And so that's not, that's not again, what's going on. What he's showing this man and us is that sin is destructive and serious. And the fruit of ongoing sin in our life with zero repentance and turning to Jesus for healing will lead to a much greater and much more damaging scenario than a 38-year physical disability. Sin separates us from our creator for an eternity. And it's not something we want to play around with. Like, I need to hear that. I need to be reminded of that. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. See, with this physical healing, Jesus is showing us a glimpse into his work to reverse the effects of the fall. And with this statement about sin, he's reminding us that his work is not done and that physical healing is only a fraction of the work that he came to do. See, every single one of us, no matter if we've experienced physical disabilities or not, we've all experienced brokenness. And normally it's a mix of because of our own sin and poor decisions and then the sin of those around us that's done unto us. And so we all are faced with the question, do you want to be whole? Like, do you want to be okay? Do you want things to work right? And when faced with the question, our tendency is one of two extremes to blame ourselves for the mess and heap on just the shame and guilt. And we turn to ourselves to try to fix the mess that we created, or we go to the other extreme and blame others. So we don't have to look inward at all. And we completely become either the victim or the problem. We put ourselves entirely into one of those two categories. When the reality is there's probably a swirling mess of emotions in our heart. And the truth is probably much more complicated than you can put into any one of your categories. But we don't want to give that up. We want to keep trying to fix it, try to categorize it. And like this man, maybe we make excuses and say, well, I've tried other things. You know, I've, I've been to therapy, which isn't bad. Or I've, I've tried this and all these things. They can even be good things. Like I've tried them and nothing's worked. Instead of just answering the question that Jesus is asking, do you want to be whole? See, the answer isn't for us to try to figure it all out and to dig ourselves out of the mess we're in, to figure out whose fault it, in, fault it is, is simply to look to Jesus, to give up control, to Sabbath, to stop working so he can, to trust him that he can do the work necessary to reverse the curse 
both with our physical, mental, emotional distress, and especially our deepest need, the spiritual. See, every sin has as, it, as at its root the sin of unbelief. John talks about this later. The book of Hebrews talks about this. We don't trust that our way, we don't trust that God's way is best. So we go our own way, do our own thing in our own power, not believing that sin is destructive, okay? And this includes even, so that's, you know, going out and doing whatever you want. You know, we look at them, yeah, those are the sinners. It also includes the self-righteous acts we do to try to fix ourselves. And that's the one maybe many of us are in danger of, you know, showing up here on Sunday mornings, going to community group, reading your Bible, giving your money. I do these things to try to earn favor with God. And it's almost worse because it's got the air of piousness. It's what the Pharisees were. And so this statement by Jesus is to jolt our hearts to turn to him for healing and say, look, guy, you tried it yourself for 38 years. Just trust me. Sin is dangerous. It's insidious and it will destroy us. See, Sabbath was supposed to be a day to push back the darkness caused by humanity trying to take control. But the Sabbath day could not deal with the root of unbelieving hearts. It wasn't enough to fix the problems. See, the bad news in our story today is that sin does the work of destroying life. But the good news is what we find in verse 17, that Jesus is working also. And his work is way more powerful than sins. Look at verse 17. Jesus responded, and this is when the Jewish leaders got mad at Jesus. And he says, my father is still working. And I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. See, the religious leaders didn't like that Jesus was doing what they called work on the Sabbath and encouraging others to do the same. So they began persecuting him. And he just nonchalantly responds like, hey, if you understood the point of Sabbath, you wouldn't be shocked. If you knew who I was, you would not be surprised. Now, next week, we're going to get to see the deity of Jesus on full display. But here, he already starts to make himself equal with God by the claims he makes with this statement of him working. Now, to understand this, we need to see that the rabbis during this time always argued, did God stop working on the seventh day? Did he actually stop working? Was that metaphorical? And at this time, they all agreed that, well, there was no way God completely stopped working or creation would have ceased to exist. And how they formulated this, they said there was this rule that, you know, you could not move one thing from a dwelling place or a domain to another. But since God owns all of creation and everything is his dwelling place and his temple, then God never works outside of his domain. This was how they kind of, you know, justified it or whatever. And it's not entirely untrue. Even the priests who worked in the temple were exempt from the normal Sabbath rules. They were doing their deeds in the house of God or the temple. So Jesus, when he begins his ministry, you know what he does in Luke? He stands up on a Sabbath day in the synagogue and he proclaims that I'm the one here to preach the good news to the poor and release the captives. And you know what he called it? The year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus is reminding us that he is the true year of Jubilee that brings final freedom from our debt of sin. Jesus here in our passage says, look, my father's always been working. Even you guys agree with that. And guess what? I'm just arm in arm working with him. And he's about to go into, and we'll see it next week, the deity of Jesus. And now he is God himself. But he says, look, I am working to push back the darkness, to undo the results of the curse. This all is my domain. 
And this lame man is just a foretaste of what I'm doing. When I will do the work, when I will heal all who turn to me, when I deal with the effects of sin finally and completely. See, if you've tried to make progress against the sin in your life or others on your own power, you're probably going to find that it's super fruitless. Our work is just as fruitless as this lame man who tried for 38 years to get healing. We need someone or something else more powerful than the feast, than the Sabbath to rescue us from sin. See, the Sabbath is not the point. The Sabbath is the shadow. The savior is the substance. See, Jesus lives the perfect life we never could. He was never tainted by sin. His ailments and his infirmities were never a result of his own sin, but he entered into the results of the sin that we created. He experienced the weariness of humanity that we all experience when we run this rat race. And he died the cruel death on the cross that should have been ours alone. You know that something worse that he told this man would happen as a result of sin? Jesus entered into that and bore both the father's wrath and the worst blow that death and hell could throw at him. And you know what he does as he dies? Going into the Sabbath day, he says, Father, into your hands, I give you my spirit. I'm going to just rest. I'm just going to let it go. And his body was laid in the ground to rest on the Sabbath. And even though it seemed like his body was resting in his death, he was doing the work that we couldn't do. He was defeating sin and death and all the powers of darkness that sought to destroy his good creation in every one of us. And after resting on the Sabbath, John tells us on the first day of the new week, he rises back to life from the dead and puts an end to the results of the fall once and for all. And you know what he is? He's the first fruits of the new creation blooming forth, bringing about a new humanity where he rips out our hearts of stone that only want to sin and puts instead a heart of flesh that wants to follow after him and know him and love him. And he's promised one day to come back and finish it all. Because even when our hearts are replaced by his work alone and we're judged on the basis of his, there's still brokenness in the world and our hearts cry out, come quickly. And he's going to answer that request. And he's going to finish the work and make all things new. And you know what Hebrews calls that time? Entering into the eternal rest. We will be made whole in the final garden. Body, mind, soul, our full selves, every part about of it, every part about us. We will finally be who you were created to be without sin interfering. And because Jesus did all the work, you know what's left for us? Believe. You know what he says the work is for us? He tells us that later in John. Just believe on the one he sent. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to work your way out of the mess that you got yourself into. Trust in him. And because he never stops working, we can. We can through him enter into true Sabbath. He's the only place, I promise you, if you've not experienced this yet in your life, you will. He's the only place where true wholeness and rest can be found. So if you've been searching and wrestling and wondering, looking for escape from the brokenness of the world, Jesus stands offering true wholeness and rest. 
do you want it? No excuses, no telling me how much you've tried to fix your life up to this point. Just do you want to be whole? Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is the invitation. If you've never experienced Jesus like this, we implore you, he is way better than sin and trust in him. Quit looking to the things of this age and fix your eyes on his beauty. And for those of us who know him, who have entered into that eternal rest, may I invite you to refix your gaze on him. May I invite you to quit looking to your performance. Like I got to preach this to myself. Like can base my value on how things are going or how my kids are doing in school or how I'm doing it, whatever. When we look to him for our validation, we can rest well and we can work well from our identity, not for it. So in one sense, we've experienced that rest. In another, we're still in the wilderness. We're still wondering waiting for our king to finish the work that he started. This is why we're honest about our need for each other. This is why we need community. We need life together. That's a part of our Sabbath, our weekly reminders to come together. And and I'm not just talking about here on Sundays, like that's a piece of it, but also like throughout the week, whatever that looks like to just remind ourselves of the good news of Jesus, that he's done the work. So stop trying. And as this happens, like we become a community that displays just a little piece of water in the wilderness, just a little place where people can be invited into. And we're not laying on these man-made rules and regulations. So you look like us and talk like us and, you know, do the, the churchy thing or whatever that even means. Rather, we just say, come experience Jesus. Do you want to be whole? Here's the healing. It's in a person, the son of God himself. So may we, each of us, be willing to slow down and abide. It's in our mission statement for a reason. Abide and sit with Jesus to rest at his feet, to labor from his acceptance, not for it. Know that Jesus and the father are still working. The spirit is still active and he's still healing all of us who will trust him. And this is the message of John. Believe on the one who the father has sent. And it's the message we still proclaim. Do you want to be whole?